0: Retrogram. Revisiting TV futures from the past. An examination of yesteryear's television science fiction, fantasy, spy-fi, horror, and superhero shows. Commencing Retrogram. Retrogram number 9060. What did you do during the syndication wars? Welcome back to Retrogram, a Retro TV podcast from the logbook.com that examines yesterday's genre programming through today's lens and tries to determine if yesterday's TV creatives managed to hit it out of the park and speak to the ages. Well, except for this installment, because today we're kind of delving into the business side of TV. And this edition is also kind of a prelude to the fact that the ground rules of the show are changing, meaning this show, Retrogram. There's a meme that's been floating around for ages, you've probably seen it. Something along the lines of, I just realized that 25 years ago doesn't mean 1970 anymore, and now I need to go lay down. That's funny stuff, but very true, and I am as guilty of that as anyone. There are parts of my brain that still think I'm 25, despite the fact that my knees and my lower back differ from that opinion in the strongest possible terms. But the fact of the matter is, shows like Highlander, Babylon 5, Star Trek Voyager... Sequest DSV, The X-Files, in their own way, those are now seriously retro. They have either hit or passed their 30th anniversaries, which is kind of insane to even think about. Batman the Animated Series cannot possibly be that old, except that it is. They all are. It's especially crazy to think about if you're like me and you used to work in TV in close quarters with some of these shows. I used to press the play button to show Highlander to everyone on Saturday evenings at the old Fox station in downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas, and that was (laughs) that was last month, surely? No, it was three decades ago. So it's time to keep sampling from the best of the genre and shift retrograms format so that it covers the 1970s, the 1980s, and at least some of the 1990s. I kind of dropped a hint about this way back at the end of the Little Black Bag episode, but I'm not sure it was a really clear hint. So yes, starting in 2023, Retrogram does the 90s too. But when discussing genre shows in the 1990s, discussing how they were made and how they were scheduled on local stations, you're also dealing with an explosion of syndicated programming. I mean, a huge amount of it. That explosion starts from two tenuously connected events. They're kind of sort of related to each other. And if anyone in the back is thinking, but hey, I want to hear about yesterday's TV and how it speaks to today, trust me, we'll get to that part in this very episode, because it has a lot to say about today. First Run syndicated programming has been around since the 1950s. It's important to distinguish between First Run and any other run. First Run means this show is premiering in syndication, and it is not a rerun that previously appeared as network programming. A rerun would obviously be Second Run. The first major source of First Run syndicated TV programming in the U.S. was an outfit called Ziv which offered a wide range of stuff. Highway Patrol, Mr. District Attorney, Sea Hunt, Science Fiction Theater, a bunch of them. Ironically, Ziv was the first maker of television shows to hire Gene Roddenberry as a writer. Gene got his start in the 50s, working on Mr. District Attorney, moonlighting as a TV script writer, while still holding down his day job in the Los Angeles Police Department. So, if you think about it, Gene's first and last TV credits would be in first-run syndicated programming. The reason there was such a burgeoning market for independently produced shows as early as the 50s was simple. The upstart TV networks, most of which started as new business ventures undertaken by the existing radio networks, were not programming a full day of TV yet. Everyone was still feeling their way around the new business model of commercial television. TV stations had time to fill, and companies like Ziv existed to fill that gap. Put a pin in that, because we're going to see this situation arise again in a few decades. Over time, as the networks accumulated more money and resources, and as television consolidated its place as America's new electronic fireplace of sorts, more programming was created by the networks to fill more of their schedule. There was less demand for syndicated programming. Outfits like Ziv had to adjust. They either had to become studios producing shows for the networks, which is a business model that Ziv pivoted to, producing Bat Masterson for NBC and Men Into Space for CBS, or they would go extinct. And as I keep using it as the prominent example, even Ziv could not stave off the inevitable. It was bought out by United Artists in 1960 and eventually ceased to exist as its own entity, with MGM hanging on to a lot of their IP. This meant that throughout the 1960s, the American TV networks really ruled TV in an unprecedented way. They controlled the horizontal, they controlled the vertical, you know the drill. Now, let's get ready for some serious jargon. I I will try to make this as painless as possible. Fast forward to 1970, and stop me if you've heard this one before, people are starting to worry about the fact that all of their programming, and to a certain extent all of their information, is in the hands of three companies. Keep in mind, in 1970, you're still in the middle of the Vietnam War. NBC was owned at this time by General Electric by way of RCA. You literally have a major television network owned by a company that is also a defense contractor. And each network had a group of usually major market stations that were owned by the networks themselves, officially termed network-owned and operated stations, or O&Os. So, it's not as if this is a concern that comes out from under someone's tinfoil hat. It is a real point of concern, both then as it is now, and that's when the Federal Communications Commission stepped in with the prime time access rule, ptar for short, as well as the financial interest and syndication rules, or Finsin Ptar set aside two hours of afternoon and early evening programming that could only be programmed by individual stations and not by the networks. There were also content limitations. Everything had to conform to family hour viewing. A lot of stations aired their local newscasts in this window. Syndicated programming also made a comeback in the form of game shows. This is where reruns of Star Trek became incredibly popular, by the way. The Kaiser Broadcasting Group, which owned independent, non-network-affiliated stations in quite a few markets, bought the Star Trek rerun package, and saw ratings jump significantly. WPIX in New York programmed Star Trek reruns opposite the nightly news, and got a 96% increase in their ratings for that hour, which, you know, I'm hip. Do I want to see news about people being bombed into oblivion, or do I want to see a hopeful future? Even British production outfits like ITC were keeping an eye on p Space 1999 was specifically and carefully engineered to fit into the primetime access time slot. ITC had hoped to land at a primetime network slot, but when that didn't happen, they definitely took note of the success that Star Trek reruns were having. And in a TV kind of way, Space 1999 was genetically engineered to fit in that same slot. You know, just in case people were growing weary of Star Trek. Which they weren't. FinCEN is a bit more complicated to explain. The financial interest in syndication rules busted up a virtual monopoly that the networks held over their programming. Basically, it said that the networks couldn't own the programming they showed. They had to license it from the studios that produced it. On the syndication side of the rule, the networks were now forbidden from owning their own syndication divisions. If a network had a syndication arm, they would have to divest themselves of it And that company would have to be a provably separate entity. CBS's syndication wing became Viacom. ABC's became World Vision Enterprises, which, as the fine print at the bottom of the screen at the end of all their shows reminded us, was not affiliated with World Vision International, a religious and charitable organization. NBC's syndication department spun off into National Telefilm Associates. What happened here? Was that the networks had gotten into the habit of squeezing their way into profit participation deals by saying hey there relatively independent producer that expensive little show isn't going to get made without deficit financing we'll foot the bill for the show if we get a slice of the profits from it in perpetuity but before the 60s were out the networks were really squeezing the producers of their shows with deals that would reserve 90 percent or more of the profit from a show For the network itself relatively small production studio upstarts like desilu or mary tyler moore's mtm enterprises were getting bent over the barrel on a regular basis the fcc ended that practice whoever made the show held on to the ip and got paid for the show as a result this by the way is why warner brothers in the 21st century reaps the windfall from getting friends onto this streaming service or that streaming service rather than NBC, Universal, or Comcast getting that money. Now, what's missing from this picture? In the early 1970s, cable TV was not as universal as it is now. Maybe as many as 6% of the households with a television in the United States were within range of a cable company. And UHF stations were still playing catch-up with VHF stations. They really only became a viable business entity when Congress mandated in 1964 that all newly manufactured TV sets had to be able to tune in UHF channels. With PTAR and FinCEN, as much as the networks absolutely hated both of these rules and did their best to come up with all kinds of end runs and loopholes around those regulations, the FCC was actually trying to keep the networks from becoming bigger monopolies than they already were. Cable started to break that landscape up a bit by the 1980s, And by then, Pitar had been relaxed so that it didn't apply to weekends anymore. So long, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. By the way, before cable TV finally reached that saturation point, like just about any new technology, there was some serious pushback from the broadcast industry. Here is a uh, a PSA that was in circulation in the 1970s, and this one was made specifically to be shown at your local theater. Monsters do have their place in the zoo, in your nightmares, in the deep, in your favorite horror movies. But not in your living room, on your TV. Don't let pay TV be the monster in your living room. Pay TV and cable TV companies are seeking the right to charge you for the very programs you now get free. If you want to stop Pay TV and save free television, sign the petition in the lobby of this theater. Let your lawmakers know how you feel in the fight against Pay TV and cable TV. What a great spot in your nightmares. Well, thank you, Freddy Krueger, for telling me what belongs in my nightmares. Thank you so much for that. It is also important to remember that there were various fourth networks that did not make it. The Dumont Network folded in 1956. The NTA Film Network sprung up to fill that gap with shows like the Mike Douglas interview until it, too, shut down in 1961. Later in the 60s, you had the Overmeyer Network, lasted less than a year. Other attempted network startups like Ms. Lu Television and Hughes Sports Television were really glorified syndication packages, as were entities that called themselves networks, such as the SFM Holiday Network. Hughes Sports Television was owned by Howard Hughes, by the way, and that was a case where the three established networks were really worried that someone with pockets that deep had entered the chat. They literally feared any indication that Hughes might broadcast anything other than a sporting event, but it never actually got around to happening. The Big Three had created their own glass ceiling that was proving nearly unbreakable. In 1977, the then-chairman of Paramount Pictures, Barry Diller, made a concerted pitch at creating a fourth network called the Paramount Television Service after buying up the stations that had previously been the core of the Hughes Network. One of the most profitable IPs in Paramount's pocket, Star Trek, was going to be revived as Star Trek Phase Two after the original 79 episodes have proved to be a perennial syndication hit throughout the 70s. Paramount Television Service, or PTS, only planned to launch with one night a week of programming, so it slipped through every loophole in the primetime access rule. But not so fast. Paramount was also producing popular programming for other networks such as Happy Days. Happy Days was on ABC, Paramount made the show, ABC licensed the show from Paramount. Some of Paramount's customers, these other networks, the the three big networks, threatened to stop buying those shows from Paramount if they did not stand down their ambitions to start a competing network. The rest of Paramount's upper brass stepped in and killed the network long before it could premiere. In February or April of 1978, two months that were floated as launch dates. Probably only because Star Wars had turned out to be a gigantic theatrical success, all of the work that had been done on Star Trek Phase Two was set aside, and its two-hour pilot was rewritten as Star Trek The Motion Picture. So we got something out of it. But here's the thing. All of these attempts to start the Fourth Network meant that there were orphaned stations all over the country, They had started up to be affiliates of Dumont, or NTA, or Overmire, or Hughes, and now they had no network affiliation. So, fun piece of trivia for you here, the Dumont owned and operated stations after that network failed, got rid of the Dumont name, because you don't want the name of a failed venture hanging around your neck, and they turned into the Metropolitan Broadcasting Corporation, which later became Metro Media, which was not its own network, yet. Anyway, all the unaffiliated stations left with wide-open schedules by failed fourth-network startups were great news for makers of syndicated programming because these were stations that needed syndicated shows from sign-on to sign-off. You know, back when TV stations did sign-off, they needed new programming from somewhere to fill all of those time slots because there was no network affiliation to do that. Whether the syndicated shows were first run or aftermarket syndicated packages of shows that had already been on the three big networks, these independent stations, whether their owners had intended for them to be independent or not, they needed programming and lots of it. Enter such syndicated shows as the horror anthology Tales of the Dark Side or shows like A Current Affair, but what they really wanted was for someone to start another network that they could hop aboard. Fast forward to 1985. Rupert Murdoch's News Corporation buys a controlling interest in 20th Century Fox, the film studio, and then drops $2.5 billion to buy out a chain of indie stations owned by Metro Media. Hey, all those former Dumont stations get to try out this fourth network thing again, because it was so much fun the first time. There was a lengthy wait while the FCC approved the buyout of these stations, Because keep in mind, it used to be that you could not have the same entity on more than one TV station or more than a certain percentage of the radio stations in a given market. But in October 1986, these stations started broadcasting a late-night talk show hosted by Joan Rivers, produced by 20th Century Fox Television. That one show, the, the only thing that the... Fox Broadcasting Corporation had to show for its existence, barely lasted into the new year. The Fox Network began broadcasting original primetime programming on Sunday, April 5th, 1987, with the premieres of Married with Children and the Tracy Ullman Show. One whole hour of programming. The next Sunday night, they added a second hour and a little show called 21 Jump Street, You may remember several retrograms ago we discussed the premiere episode of Fox's Werewolf in July 1987. That was Fox staking its claim to a Saturday night schedule. So Fox was programming primetime on the weekends, but just the weekends. In late 1986, Paramount Pictures had decided to create a new Star Trek TV series with a new cast, and though their initial plans for this included a premise drawn up by Greg and Sam Strangis, Gene Roddenberry reasserted himself as creator of the original show, and Gene, and it has to be said his attorney, cut a sweetheart deal for him to come back and create the new show for Paramount. The studio tried to interest the networks in the new Star Trek as potential network programming, but found very few takers. The only takers they really had were extremely risk-averse. CBS wanted a TV movie, and then they wanted to see what the reaction to that was before greenlighting a weekly series. Fox was a bit hungrier for high-profile new programming, but they only wanted to pone up for 13 episodes, not the 20 or more episodes typical of a network TV season at the time. So Paramount boldly went and decided it would produce the new Star Trek for first-run syndication. A more cheaply produced sibling, initially called The 13th Hour, was rebranded as Friday the 13th the series, since Paramount had the rights to that movie franchise and wanted that show to have a higher profile, even though it was completely unrelated. Paired with the new Star Trek, Paramount now had a very attention-getting syndication package on its hands, two hour-long shows with very recognizable names. It's in the launch of the Fox Network and the relaunch of Star Trek on TV that you find the seeds of the 90s syndication boom. And boom it did. So, our halftime score in late 1987, Fox is now programming two whole nights a week. Paramount has just launched a first-run syndication package consisting of Star Trek The Next Generation and Friday the 13th The Series, a syndication package that has ironically found a home on a lot of the stations that are now Fox affiliates. And why not when Fox is only programming two nights a week? They wouldn't expand to a third night until they took over Monday nights at the beginning of 1989. This is why, to this very day, you have people insisting that Star Trek The Next Generation was on Fox. It may have been on their local Fox station, but it was not part of that network's lineup. Other studios were definitely noticing the success that Paramount was having with Star Trek The Next Generation, and they wanted to try to claim some of that action for themselves. Universal tried to launch its own competing programming block, the Hollywood Premiere Network, in time for the fall 1990 season. This network, which uh, a word that Fox's very slow rollout was making almost meaningless at this point, was a syndication package consisting of three hour-long shows. She Wolf of London, They Came from Outer Space, and Shades of L.A. The first two of those were definitely an attempt to try to get into the sci-fi and horror niches that Paramount's offerings had a lock on. Hollywood Premier Network lasted long enough for its three shows to crank out about 20 episodes each, full season of each, and then it folded. At the beginning of the 1990 fall season, Fox took over Thursdays and Fridays. At this point, with shows like Cops, Beverly Hills 90210, and The Simpsons on the schedule, Fox was becoming a thorn in the side of the big three networks. By 1993, Fox was programming two hours of primetime every night of the week, along with an afternoon block of children's shows and numerous attempts at late-night programming, Some of it far worse than others. Does anyone remember the Chevy Chase talk show? If you don't, it's better this way, trust me. Syndicated programming was now being squeezed to either 10 Eastern or later, or was being dropped on the weekends. All this moving around of syndicated shows that previously had a prime time slot was not great for these syndicated shows ratings. Also, by the beginning of 1993, Star Trek The Next Generation had a very moody little brother, Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Warner Brothers, in association with a group of stations owned by the television division of Chris Craft, yes, the boat company, started their own syndicated package, the Primetime Entertainment Network, or P-10, with a handful of documentary series, a pilot movie for a sci-fi show called Babylon 5, and two-hour-long weekly series, Kung Fu, The Legend Continues, and Time Tracks. Warners and Chris Craft made a lot of noise about P-10 being the fifth network. But no, sorry, it was a syndication package, and one that quickly found itself left out in the cold because a lot of its affiliates were Fox stations who suddenly didn't have primetime real estate open to schedule the primetime entertainment network shows. Hold that thought. Get ready for Game Changer number one. You remember the FinCin rule? It was struck in 1993, the FCC having been persuaded that it was no longer serving a useful purpose and was instead creating more headaches than it was worth. I'm sure the networks and the studios did that persuading. So now all the networks, not just Fox, which was not yet programming enough hours of enough days of the week to be subject to the rules binding ABC, CBS, and NBC— Fox could produce their own programming in-house instead of having to spin off a separate production company, or, as had often been the case since the 70s, make it look like they had spun off a separate production company. With the studios producing a lot of syndicated content that suddenly wound up in sub-prime time slots on Fox stations, there was now nothing stopping everyone in Hollywood from saying, ''Hey, we should start our own network.'' by the way that really works best if you imagine it with the meme of the cat reading the newspaper you know i should buy a boat almost as soon as deep space 9 was airing paramount announced its plans to start a fifth network as soon as p10 was airing warner brothers announced its plans to start a fifth network which kind of honked off chris craft because they're like wait didn't we just pitch a lot of money into starting the fifth network what about p10 but P-10 didn't stand a chance. Most of its takers were Fox stations that were already burying Kung Fu and time tracks, and after the start of 1994, Babylon 5 is a weekly series, in the worst time slots imaginable, because Fox was expanding so rapidly. Warners showed no interest in Chris Craft having any involvement with their new fifth network venture, the WB. Chris Craft, started the process of wriggling out from under P-10, and just writing it off as a massive loss, and began making overtures to Paramount. From this moment on, P-10 was on life support. It was eventually whittled down to the point that it was nothing but a syndication package with Babylon 5 and Kung Fu, and in the last year that P-10 was on the air, it was just Babylon 5. By the way, Chris Craft's TV operation was now known as United Television, and that and its approach to Paramount with its station group as the potential core of Paramount's fifth network was where you got the United Paramount Network, or UPN. 1993 is also the year I started working in local TV and being immersed in a lot of this information, and it's important to point some stuff out. Syndication was a boom in all genres, not just the sci-fi, horror, fantasy, and superhero stuff that Retrogram normally deals with. I remember Saturday evenings at the super-low-power, super-low-budget Fox station where I worked. We had Highlander and Renegade on before Fox's prime time block kicked off with cops. But there was a lot of second-run network rerun programming taking up the syndicated schedule, too. Full House, The Wonder Years, and so on. Also, first-run syndication had become a haven for shows that hadn't made it on any other networks. We had Baywatch on Saturday afternoons started out as a network show, and then went syndicated when it got canceled. Forever Night was a show that jumped around quite a bit, started on CBS, went into syndication for year two, moved to USA Network on cable for year three. One thing that struck me was the weird love-hate relationship the station management had with syndicated programming. By this point, most stations were staying on the air 24 hours. Uh, In our case, instead of signing off, our Fox station went to Home Shopping Network in the overnight hours, which was apparently something they got some kind of minor kickback from. But the owner and manager of the station where I worked absolutely hated sci-fi. He would grouse about the fact that he only took on Warner's primetime entertainment network because one of the premier documentaries was about the Old West, which was a thing that he loved. He totally hated that it became the Time Tracks and Babylon 5 syndication package, after the Old West series was done. Dude, P-10 said, up front, those other things were only ten episodes and then out. These are our ongoing shows. It's, you know, it wasn't even buried in the fine print. But anyway, so now every syndication package is potentially the fifth network. Paramount announced in the summer of 1993, and keep in mind, we literally only just finished season one of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, that UPN's big draw card was going to be called Star Trek Voyager to launch in January 95. And the WB? They would also launch in January 95. It's getting kind of crowded in here. And in case you missed it, these new networks are an indication that history has lapped itself. Remember how the 1950s slate of first run syndicated shows was made extinct by the networks scheduling more and more of each day? That had just happened again with Fox a network whose local stations had previously fueled a new boom of first-run syndicated programming, but with the rule change, the studios could get out of the syndication business and into the network business. Or at least, that was the plan. It was already a crowded landscape, and not everybody would make it. But the good news is, for those who had no big network ambitions, yet, there were at least two bouncing baby networks on the way who had already made clear that they would be starting small like Fox did, two nights a week. Now, as we're in the little gap between Fox hitting a -a seven-night-a-week schedule and UPN and the WB signing on, it's a good time to pause and note that the now very lucrative first-run syndication market was obviously becoming a place for genre shows to flourish. And that's why we're talking about this on Retrogram. Going back to the early 80s, early to mid-80s, the production costs of V as a weekly series— had nearly bankrupted Warner Brothers TV division. All of its effects were done as opticals on film, basically the same effects workflow used on movies like Star Wars. And this was the same problem that had been experienced by past shows like Battlestar Galactica and Buck Rogers. This was a long, laborious, and expensive way to do special effects, and keeping a TV series on schedule is incompatible with at least two of those things. In 1985, when CBS relaunched The Twilight Zone, a new way of doing effects was developed. Instead of film opticals, all effects would be in the realm of video. That videotape and video effects workflow was enough of a game-changer that it's also how all of the new Star Trek shows would be done for the rest of the 1990s. But there was a bit of a trade-off there, which we will get back to. The video effects workflow, combined with the arrival of CGI as a tool for television special effects, beginning with shows like Babylon 5 and Sequest DSV, meant that producing science fiction on a television budget, especially a lower syndicated television budget, was now a thing that could happen. The effects often weren't great. Early CGI for TV has not aged well. But all of these factors, plus even more stations that would need content, meant that series pitches that would not have been picked up by the networks were now getting a chance as syndicated shows. This is really where you had a glut of genre programming. I mean, actually, more happening in a week than you could keep up with, which sometimes worked out pretty well. But I'll tell that story after we hear from our sponsor. Ashley Thomas is the nerdy blogger. Ashley has a master's degree in literature and language, as well as a decade's worth of experience in writing for web publications. If you're looking for someone to assist you with copy for your website, blog posts, email campaigns, web store, social media management, or assistance with search engine optimization, Ashley's your gal. Ashley also spends her time writing about film, television, and comic books, contributing to sites such as Fangirlish.com and PopCultureRetroRama.com. You can learn more about Ashley and the work she does at NerdyBlogging.WordPress.com, Wordpress.com, where you can contact her for more information about her writing services. The nerdy blogger is proud to be a supporter of the logbook.com and its podcasts. I hope that this is not proving to be a totally boring info dump, by the way. In 1994, Universal Studios' MCA TV division rolled out the Universal Action Pack, which is a great example of the kind of shows that doing effects on videotape and the advent of CGI were allowing to happen. The Action Pack started as a series of made-for-TV movies that served as a way to gauge audience interest through the resulting ratings in any of the movies as the starting point for an eventual series. Some of the prospective series that went through several TV movies, including attempts to translate universal movie properties like Midnight Run and Smokey and the Bandit to ongoing TV entities. And Night Rider 2010, a one-off attempt to revive a previous Universal TV series. After getting ample time for a test run with audiences as two hour movies, only two of the shows went weekly, Hercules' The Legendary Journeys, and the martial arts series Vanishing Sun. After four successful TV movies, Tech War, based on the William Shatner novels, got snatched away by USA Network for cable, though Universal also had a stake in USA and in Sci-Fi Channel, so it stayed in the family. But as a weekly show with a cable time slot, Tech War only lasted a season. Vanishing Sun lasted only half a season as part of the Universal Action Pack. UPN and the WB launched in January 1995, and while they both scored decent ratings on their respective opening nights, which was understandable as people were tuning in out of curiosity, and of course UPN's first night being the premiere of Star Trek Voyager, you automatically had the Star Trek crowd tuning in for a new show that was essentially taking the place of the next generation. Quite a few of the stations affiliated with either of the new Upstart networks gave the Universal Action Pack a home. That includes the UPN station in Green Bay, Wisconsin that hired me in 1997. Now, by this time, UPN had expanded to Wednesday nights as well, and in fact, they had moved Star Trek Voyager to Wednesday nights. The station I worked at had a huge number of syndicated shows, both first and second run. We had the syndicated rerun packages for shows like Stargate SG-1 and Poltergeist The Legacy. And I ever so gently suggested that maybe we could be an over-the-air sci-fi channel from Wednesdays through Sundays in prime time. Okay, it wasn't a gentle suggestion. There was a bit of a fight there. But it's a story I have told before, back in the first 2019 episode of the Don't Give This Tape to Earl podcast, which you can find at thelogbook.com slash thistape. I direct you to that show for the details of what happened in Wisconsin. But by the time my stint at the Green Bay UPN station was done... UPN and the WB had both expanded to five nights a week with optional extra programming that most of their stations usually put in primetime on the weekends. And so it's like Fox all over again. The syndicated programming gets drop-kicked into super late-night death slots or weekend slots because the network is taking up the primetime real estate. Going into the early 2000s, syndicated programming was very much in retreat. You had Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda, Legend of the Seeker... Mutant X, but there were fewer outlets overall looking to buy these shows. The window for First One syndication to be the safe haven for genre TV was closing pretty fast. Studios and showrunners were now just pitching this stuff directly at the Sci-Fi channel or other cable outlets. The broadcast TV market was drying up fast. We'll never see anything like that glut of programming again. Unless, of course, we're seeing it now. From the vantage point of early 2023, broadcast network as a whole is starting to seem kind of quaint. Every studio that had started a network at any point is now at least one foot in the streaming game. Keep in mind that UPN and WB no longer exist. Their historical footnotes up there with Dumont, NTA, Overmeyer, Hughes and the Paramount Television Service. And history has wound up repeating itself again. The big draw for what started out as CBS All Access? A new Star Trek series again, Star Trek Discovery. Disney opened up with the first live-action Star Wars series. And Rinse and Repeat. But as we know now, the streaming service game is entering a phase of attrition just like the syndication market before it. Not every streaming service will make it. Not every streaming show will make it, even if it seems like a slam dunk. As I write this, AMC is engaging in significant downsizing of its streaming operation. One of its streaming shows that I was particularly fond of, Moonhaven, had been renewed for a second season, and then had that renewal rescinded as part of that downsizing. HBO Max has been flailing around wildly for most of the past year, cancelling and dropping what often seems like completely random shows in an effort to try to bring their costs under control, and even drop-kicking recent hits like Westworld off of their service so they can stop paying residuals to those show creators and writers and actors. There's shuffling and downsizing going on at Disney and Paramount. Paramount just announced what sounds like a full merger in every way but name between the Showtime Premium cable service and the Paramount Plus streaming service. My guess is this means you'll be seeing Showtime stuff on Paramount+, and you'll be seeing a lot of Paramount Plus stuff on Showtime, you know, for those who just refuse to get sucked into the streaming world and are still on cable. The phase of the streaming wars where everyone just threw money at the wall to see what would stick has passed, and now everybody's looking at what actually popped a number and brought in money. Just between you and me, I'm kind of hoping that this is where Disney realizes it could be bringing in more money by putting stuff like The Mandalorian and the Marvel shows out on Blu-ray. For those of us who like our physical media with value-added material, thank you very much. But either way, there is a reckoning happening in real time right now, and there's going to be a winnowing that goes with it. The streaming wars are just the syndication boom years writ large, and the cast of characters consists largely of the same players, though there are, as always, a few upstarts. Netflix and Amazon come to mind there. And here's the thing. At some point, some of the old players are going to start thinking, ah, you know what, screw it. Why didn't we just continue to put our stuff on Netflix and Amazon? And sooner or later, somewhere in an executive suite, someone's going to answer, I don't know, that sounds like a good idea to me. But if Netflix or Amazon is the destination, Chances are there will be less new material produced. That means fewer slots for the kind of shows that you tune into Retrogram to hear about. As much genre TV as it seems like there is here and now in 2023, brace yourself because that may not continue to be the case. Uh, Another thing that's also rapidly disappearing with this drawdown of the streaming world is diversity in either casting or staffing on these shows. So unfortunately, I think that means, you know, we will see the previously diverse streaming landscape turn into a bunch of white guys, which just kind of loops us around to the 1950s again. Sometimes even the shows that are already in the can wind up costing money. You remember that little bit about the pivot to a videotape and video effects workflow in the 1980s that started to make more sci-fi on TV possible? that has come back to haunt quite a few beloved shows in a major way. Video effects from that era were created at 640 by 480 resolution for NTSC videotape. There was no higher original resolution like you'd have if the effects originated on film. If you cast your mind back to the HD restoration of Star Trek The Next Generation, that was possible primarily because most of the effects did originate on film, so if CBS just rescanned all the film, they could rebuild all of the effects shots at the higher resolution with more modern video editing software. Most of next generation was pre-CGI, so the only CG work that had to be done was phaser fire or glowing shields, and it was a lot of work but not backbreaking. This work was done, a lot of money was spent on it, and while Star Trek the Next Generation now exists in very sharp HD, the Blu-ray sales did not set the world, or CBS's accounting department, on fire. Now, fast forward to about the middle of Deep Space Nine. CGI in Star Trek is now happening a lot more, and by the end of it, you have entire battle scenes done in CG and not with models at all. All of that stuff would have to be re-rendered from the ground up. And because some of the models were originally built to withstand only that 640 by 480 standard resolution, you would have to rebuild the models from scratch and make them more detailed. Voyager embraced CGI from the start and had entire CGI creatures like Species 8472 or those giant virus things that Janeway spent an entire episode fighting in Ripley mode. That stuff is even more expensive to redo at HD because, again, you're going to be rebuilding it from scratch. Here's another case study. Babylon 5, a show that was almost 100% CGI from the start. I think there were maybe two model shots in the entirety of the series. At the end of 2020, HBO Max rolled out a restored version of Babylon 5 that they had quietly undertaken at some significant expense. So here's a show that finished production years ago, decades ago actually, but bringing it into HD was still costing the studio money. They rescanned all the film, rebuilt all the shows in editing software, but for anything involving CGI, which included scenes that were entirely in space with no live-action elements, as well as composite shots that did involve live-action film, they used AI upscaling software. I think it was advertised that uh, Topaz Video Enhance AI had been used for this. Reportedly, they had to finesse and fix the results a lot before all 110 episodes of Babylon 5 were ready to be seen again. The DVDs issued in the 2000s had been mastered from the UK Laserdisc sources, and until HBO Max took on this work, honestly, it was really hard to convince anyone who had missed Babylon 5 the first time around to go back and watch it now, because it looked like soft cream sh- on DVD. There were some other trade-offs too. It's always about trade-offs. Babylon 5 was originally broadcast in the 4-3 aspect ratio of an older tube TV, but it was filmed in 16x9 widescreen because they were trying to future-proof it. However, due to the expense involved, the CGI was only rendered at 4-3. The crappy DVDs I just mentioned, they just zoomed in on the CGI or the composite shot until it filled the screen, which made what was once sharp, cutting-edge CGI look fuzzy and out of focus. It looked awful. The DVDs are terrible. For the HBO Max remaster, since they were restoring the full CGI images by upscaling, even the live-action footage was cropped back down to 4.3, so what we're getting is an HD version of the show as originally broadcast, not as originally filmed. All because of super budget-conscious lack of foresight at nearly every step of the process, before the remastering was done. Now you're thinking, oh, well that's great, we can just run everything through Topaz Video Enhance AI. Not so fast. There are some middle steps. Tube TVs worked on the principle of interlaced video. Every frame was drawn with two sets of alternating horizontal lines, but these kind of Venetian blinds images were shown so fast that the human eye registers fluid motion. That's interlaced video. Before you upscale interlaced video, it needs to be put through a time-intensive process called deinterlacing. If you don't do deinterlace processing, that results in what is called progressive video. You end up with the Sequest DSV Blu-ray box set that I bought this past summer. Just like HBO Max did with Babylon 5, Universal rescanned all of the live-action film, rebuilt every episode of Sequest DSV from scratch. Keeping only the original sound mix. Sounds awesome, right? I can finally see Darwin the Dolphin in HD. Here's the not so awesome part. They did not deinterlace all of the early CGI that was done on Amiga Video Toaster Systems running Lightwave 3D software. That CGI was originally done at 640x480, and without deinterlacing, the Venetian Blinds effect is upscaled with the rest of the picture, and the CGI scenes just look terrible. Especially if there's a lot of fast motion. It looks bad. This was not a problem when Universal rescanned The Incredible Hulk, or Knight Rider, or Battlestar Galactica, or Buck Rogers, or The Bionic Woman, or The Six Million Dollar Man for Blu ray and streaming, because all of those shows did their effects on film instead of videotape. Everything, including the effects, upscales cleanly when you rescan that original film at a higher resolution. And I think this is why the price of the Sequest Blu-ray set dropped by nearly half between when it was announced and when it finally started to ship, because I think someone at the studio said, oh, we have this up in a big way. The alternative to all these dances with upscaling software is... you think these same spendthrift studios are going to hire CGI artists to redesign the models to withstand the scrutiny of higher resolution? and get them to re-render and recomposite every CGI shot? Not gonna happen. The late 80s and early 90s were a heyday for cheaply produced programming. However much creative integrity the show's creators had, the studios bankrolling the lot of them did not future-proof them. They were pretty much disposable. They were the ammunition of the syndication wars. And a lot of them are either stuck in standard definition as a result, or will be subject to half-assed upscaling like Sequest. Rinse and repeat. Someday when we all have VR headsets or holodecks, someone will be ranting on a podcast that it's... And that podcast, by the way, will probably be beat directly into your brain. Someone will be complaining that it's all... It's too bad. All that old stuff produced in two-dimensional 4K video can't be upscaled to holographic 3D. My advice is love these old shows for what they are. Don't sweat too much over what they could never be. When Retrogram comes back next time, we are diving straight into the 90s. And I thought it would be helpful to give you this primer on the syndication market that made, frankly, most of the stuff that we will be covering. So as of now, Retrogram covers from the beginning of 1970 to the end of 1995. Lots of reasons for that cutoff point. After 1995, you wind up with so much genre programming in a single week, you can't keep up with it. A podcast covering a single week would wind up being three hours long. And I'm sure you're all about ready to tap out right now. The syndication boom is responsible for a lot of that. So was a breakout network hit, a little show you may have heard of called The X-Files, which inspired a lot of, um... Let's affectionately call them tributes. I also don't want to wind up at the same intersection with my pals at Mission Log, who are now into Season 3 of Star Trek Voyager, and full disclosure, a lot of what keeps a roof over my head so I can keep doing retrogram is doing production duties on that show. So a 1995 cutoff keeps me well behind where they are now. And also, if I declare the cutoff point is 1995, I will never ever have to mention Mambo Number no. 5 on this show. Let us never speak of the trumpets again. Even though this sounds like a whole new era for retrogram, hopefully this Syndication 101 lecture demonstrates that really... It's the same game over and over again. The ground rules really haven't changed that much in the 21st century. And, uh, you know, a big part of it was me realizing that really, the 90s are now seriously retro, because I'm getting old, but I'm still sitting in an open mic. When Retrogram returns, get ready for a head trip. Or maybe more than one head trip. podcast was researched, written, and hosted by Earl Green. The show's theme music was composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find his work at betterwithmusic.com and at freemusicarchive.org. If you're listening to this and you haven't already joined the ranks of the Logbook's Patreon supporters, now is an excellent time to do so, even if you can only pitch in a little bit. Even that little bit helps keep the logbook.com and the logbook.media and all of the related podcasts and videocasts going. You could be like Philip and Kevin and Ferg and Darwin and Cindy and icy robots and Paul and Mark and Charles and Ashley, and sign up as a patron at Patreon.com/slash/logbook. The same membership tiers are also available at ko-fi.com slash the logbook if you don't want to use Patreon. You get show notes and occasional outtakes and other fun stuff, and of course there's the Discord where we all sit around and talk about this stuff further after the shows are over and show lots of cat pictures, that's the best part. You can also use Coffee. that's the aforementioned ko-fi.com, if you want to just throw us a one-time donation. You can also support the site by buying t-shirts, mugs, and even non-medical grade face masks and other goodies from our store at the logbook.redbubble.com. If you need to catch up on Star Trek Discovery, Star Trek Picard, Star Trek Strange New World, Star Trek Prodigy, Star Trek Lower Decks, or you know, like Star Trek Colon Everything, and anything else on Paramount Plus. You can sign up for a free week through the links on our site. If you decide to stay as a subscriber, That helps The Logbook out a lot. Thank you as always for listening. Retrogram is a production of thelogbook.com. This is the Dumont Television Network.